Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. Oh my God. How are you doing this weekend? I am feeling like really uh, one hot. I feel like we always talk about the weather in some ways. So I'm just going <laughs> to do that. I'm feeling very, very hot, but also like, uh, whoa to all the people who were affected by tornadoes this week. Mm. Jeez. Yeah, the weather is um, the weather is not loving humanity right now, is it? Or maybe the weather is just like loving humanity, but humanity is not loving the weather that humanity has caused. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Yeah. Fine. The weather is not. We've angered the earth, and uh, we're continuing to to do so. I mean, we are still really smoky here in Quebec City, and I know that that smoke is also happening in Montreal, Ottawa, and Toronto. Uh, it sucks. It sucks. It's like I haven't seen the mountains um, in a long time. And I'm like, whoa, that's really weird. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty awful. So, I mean, obviously there are going to be p- listeners who are impacted by that stuff. So, fuck, you know, like, um, damn, like we're, we're with you if you're impacted by that, what's going on. I mean, you are impacted by what's going on. But if you in particular have been impacted by tornadoes this week, fuck we're with you i mean i just had like there were some earthquakes last night and oh. i just still cannot get used to that shit i'm just like damn <laughs> earthquakes uh oh, sure fuck don't get swallowed up by one of those holes well i'm trying not to how are you doing I'm doing well. I, I have to say, I am a little bit surprised at how many people have been in touch with us about this segment on whales. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually, yeah. I mean, y'all, if you, you know, you get a taste of Nora online and through this, through this podcast, but this is the real Nora. Okay. This is who she is. <laughs> <laughs> like eighty five percent of the the time, it, you know, it's like that. That's Nora. Um, in case you didn't know, and when when I say, you know, like you've probably, if you've been a listener of this long, podcast for a while, you've heard me say that we disagree with each other a lot. Um, and but you've probably not heard us disagree with each other that much on this podcast. Well, that's kind of what it sounds like <laughs> <laughs> when it happens. It's kind of exactly like that. So there you go. <laughs> you disagree with how hilarious I am. That's so cutting. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Um, yeah, it's true. It's totally true. And uh, I got the message, everybody. You want to hear more of my inner thoughts? I will probably not share them, but maybe I will. Maybe I will. But the best part of all of this is that you are all thinking about what I'm thinking. And that creates community, folks. We are bound to one another. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, in in the spirit of um, acknowledging community, whether bound together by dropped keys or not, perhaps we can thank some people who create this community, who make this community possible. Community of Sandy and Nora listeners. Yes, absolutely. So this week, thank you to everybody that shared the hilarious little quip about whales or the actual episode itself, whatever, told your friends, told your enemies about Sandy Nora. We appreciate all of that. We especially appreciate everyone who changed their donation or donated for the first time, specifically Rebecca and Chelsea. Thank you so, so much for your support. Thank you so much. Okay. So we, I mean, fuck, this week was a week of news. Okay. News again. I love it. There's stuff going on. All the news happened this week. Earth is alive and dying. Oh, Yeah, uh uh-huh. I mean, while (laughs) humanity is certainly in decline, Nora, I, you know, the the Daily News, as I've always said, really great. One of the things that you've mentioned on the Daily News this week, uh, like, really, like, blew my mind. Like, my brain was unable to process. So there was a shooting inside of Hope Hospital uh, on the West Coast like in in the emergency room carried out by police someone died and that wasn't <laughs> fucking front page news everywhere all over this country and um we still mm-hmm. don't really know what the fuck happened yeah so if if you missed it was that the f- what the fuck mm. <laughs> i just so that is 
I, it was brain breaking news. It, um, it, it broke mm-hmm. my brain. Yeah. So that happened at the Fraser Canyon Hospital. There was um, an accident on the Coquihalla Highway and uh, two people, uh, well, all of the people who were in this crash was a two car crash, went to the hospital and then a fight broke out between the two of them. I, I, okay, on the side of like what the hell happened, and I said this on the Daily News, but hospital emergency rooms deal with people in crisis. That's what they do. There are multiple code blan- whites. <laughs> Sorry, that's me talking in French. There's multiple code white, not code blanc, as I hear when I'm in my hospital. Uh, there are multiple emergencies. People are not well. That's why they're in the hospital. And th- that somehow happened uh, to people fighting and injured descended into a police officer discharging his weapon and killing someone in the emergency room i i I can't believe sandy that this isn't national news like we're seeing what's going on in france right i mean we're not france for a whole bunch of reasons but like how could an emergency room murder not make national news in this country yeah, I don't understand. And then I, you know, the I mean, the daily news is meant to be snippets. It's meant to be short. So I'm like, I let me just go and try to find out more information. Let me look up myself this story, because surely by this time, you know, I it had been a few hours since you had reported it. Surely by this time, there must be more information, some sort of story, some witnesses who had been spoken to by any news source. And like, no, yes, there have been um, some stories that have been reported with one witness in particular who was not in the room, but describes hearing the gunshots and being scared and, and trying to get out of the area that she was in, which, you know, like... I mean, fuck, imagine this. You go to the emergency room because you are nervous about being, um, you know, in danger in some way with your health uh, and and then end up uh, witnessing, hearing uh, or fearing for your life, witnessing someone be killed or actually being killed in the fucking emergency room. And there's there just doesn't seem to be any further information about this. And like, I just mm-hmm. I'm like, is what like this is a failure on multiple levels because there should I mean, maybe maybe people don't want to talk. I don't know. But I, I just would have imagined by this point there would be um, more witness statements to, to for a journalist who wants who is like reporting on this to to try to give us a little bit more information as to what the fuck happened. Um, uh, but then you know, of course, you get the the same sort of reporting that you always do when something happens with police, like this very sort of as you mentioned in the in the uh, in the in the news report, uh, very sort of passive language of like you know, a police officer discharged his weapon, which resulted in somebody being killed, and no other. Inf- information as to what was going on. Anyway, I think it's like super clear that this should uh, anger and um, concern a lot of people. And I just, you know, I don't understand. So the watchdog body in, uh, in British Columbia is looking into this. And so I guess we'll, we'll hear eventually something maybe in six months or a year or something about what happened here. Mm-hmm. I'll just the one thing I'll add is that in the article that I had referenced in the Daily News podcast, there was a video that went with the article, and that video had other comments from people because they'd done a streeter, and they they I don't like unless I miss someone in one of these videos. That one of the comments that I saw was just a, a passerby who was near the hospital asked what what did he think about this incident incident, and his reaction was like, this is going to I think underpin a lot of the conversation we have tonight. His reaction was oh, yeah, things are getting so much worse. Like, it's you're not safe anywhere. Like, this is, like, we're really afraid. Like, I can't believe that this happened. And it could have been them talking about a random shooting. It could have been them being caught in um, Hell's Angels shootings, uh, robbery shooting. It was, like, no indication that we are literally talking about police shooting somebody and killing them in an emergency room. I mean... This is the problem with propaganda is that when something like this happens, journalists often don't have the tools to be able to actually like make this story different. And then it just kind of repeats scripts that we're hearing all the time and more and more about society decay and safety and how everybody's afraid and all this stuff. It's just it's really too bad. And and yeah, I don't know. Hopefully we'll hear more. Maybe it's the biggest news in British Columbia, but it certainly hasn't left the province if that's the case. Yeah. And also this week, big news out of Toronto. 
I think I think I can safely say that the prediction that I made that the powers that be would try to make Annabelle Bile win um, mm-hmm. was correct. <laughs> and I mean, <laughs> I didn't watch the votes come in. Uh, I had a meeting just before um, the votes were being counted counted that ended right as the votes were being counted and I was just like nah I gotta go take a shower I can't do this (laughs) so I came back to to all sorts of messages on my phone of people like freaking out because uh they you know it looked like Anna Bailau could could have maybe done it like that that the 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 previous mayor of Toronto John Tory endorsing Anna Bailau making her his preferred candidate uh, seemed to have done uh, quite a bit in addition to, I, I don't know, the Toronto Star putting her large on the front page, um, seemed to have done quite a bit uh, to close the gap that the polls were reporting were between Olivia Chow and Anna Bailau, but Olivia Chow managed to do it. And we mm-hmm. had some listeners reach out to us, um, you know, like just, you know, like I'm, I'm happy about this. Should I be happy about this? How do I understand um, this sort of win? And how do I process this? How should I be feeling about this? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that right off the bat, it's good news, right? There's no question that it's good news. It's not you can't look at a at a, at a chow victory and say it in any way it's bad news. It's not making Toronto worse. Uh, what everyone, of course, I think is worried about is how much uh, power will she actually have? Which, which what what power will she wield? Because she's already said that she won't use the strong mayor power. I'm, I'm assuming that that was a political statement, and I expect her to change her mind. But we will see. Um, and you know. How fast will she make decisions that contradict or that don't exactly do what people are hoping her to do? That's that's all obviously what, you know, what everyone's waiting to watch and see, like, what's what's going to happen here? Uh, the mayor of Toronto doesn't have the power to do a lot of things that nest that need to happen, though they do have power, a lot of power to do some things that, that do need to happen. Uh, I know that in Olivia's team, there's a lot of folks that listen to the podcast, a lot of folks we know personally. And um, and it's it's a great victory. And, you know, the question one of the questions we got was, is this harm reduction? And I think that. I don't I wouldn't look at it as harm reduction. I think that voting is something that if you have time to do, you should do it or not. Um, there will be a difference between an Olivia Chow as mayor and an Anna Belayo as mayor. But I think that this is now I'm going to get critical. Uh, here are the things that I was most concerned about seeing the results. So Belau and Anthony Fury and and former Toronto Police uh, Chief Mark Saunders they had a lot of fucking votes. Uh, I believe together they had more votes than Olivia. And I think that that is where anybody who is an activist uh, should be the most concerned. Because, you know, during an election, it makes a lot of sense that people will get into uh, an election campaign team and try and get somebody elected. Once they're elected, you're not you, you don't have to work for them. I mean, there's obviously people that will work for them. But if you care about an issue, then once they're elected, you should be fighting like crazy against that person or with that person, but pushing them to the left. Like, that's how this works. And seeing so many people in the city of Toronto vote for um, the, 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 the pick of, of capital, uh, a former cop and a almost fascist. I mean, that's really, really, really bad news. And I think that that is where everybody's energy should be. It's like, great, celebrate the victory of Olivia, but understand that she can only do things if she's pushed from the left. And she needs that as much as we need to do that to all of our our elected politicians. So I think that's that's how I would look at this. And uh, congratulations to the people that worked on the campaign. And um, I mean... (laughs) Good luck. Like you got a lot of work out of you. <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, fuck. It's really good. My one comment. I mean, I the wind brought me back to Twitter for a for a hot second just to say. <laughs> um, my one comment on the whole thing, which was that I think it was masterful that she uh, she announced her candidacy late in the game because I think if she mm. if it had been one more week. Um, those elites would have figured out a way for to to make sure that um, that you know that she didn't get the victory that she did, and I think that the results tell us that. So uh, congratulations to the person who made that decision, good decision. Um, but and congratulations to all the people who were working on the campaign. And my my comments are very similar to yours, Nora. I think that the posture 
for someone on the left shouldn't be like, okay, I'm going to wait and, uh, you know, I'm going to scrutinize everything and figure out when I can say that Olivia Chow has failed us and, uh, you know, be able to, to, to talk about this or, you know, to try to comb through everything that she's got and figure out what, sh- what the thing is that she's going to disappoint us on. Like, here is the reality of politics, okay? Um, any politician is going to disappoint you. At some point, they are. It's just going to happen. Every single one. Every <laughs> single one. So you can just like put that part out of your mind because it's going to happen. The the most important thing for you to do is to try to get her, like someone like Olivia Chow, who whose uh, political history, like you can take a look at and know that she is someone that you can pull. You can pull her. So that means it's go time. You know, mm-hmm. it is time to do as much organizing that you can um, uh, to to try to pull her to the place that you need her to be or even better um, on any particular issue. And I think that that's a good thing. So um, I hope that's the posture that you take uh, because this uh, it is an opportunity that we have uh, at this point and it should be taken. Totally, 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 totally. So yeah, good luck. Good luck, everybody. <laughs> good luck. Um, and and for everybody in a city that has like a city council that sucks, like it's worth organizing. I've seen some amazing uh, things happen in Quebec City thanks to left wing pressure, real left wing pressure from a real left wing candidate, like uh, explicitly left and and a, and a party that came out of the ashes of what the former kind of left ish party was. Um, and so it's very possible. So you know, the fight continues. The fight continues. Okay. Huh. Again, lots of things to talk about this week. What's next, Nora? What do we do? Do we do the Supreme <laughs> Court in the United States? Do we do Google being like, fuck Canadian news? Or do we do... No, let's a- talk about... Let's get the American shit out of the way. And then the rest of the episode, we will be talking about Google in Canada and, oh my God, stabbing at the University of Waterloo. But before we get there, Sandy, I have to say this. This is your court now. What the fuck? Oh, sorry, what? This is my court now? I think that the Supreme Court made it very clear that it is expressly not my court this week. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, the, the United States Supreme Court um, had a lot of decisions this week. And if you um, haven't heard the, the three sort of major ones that have come out, one is uh, about uh, the student loan relief that uh, Biden announced, uh, unconstitutional, apparently. <laughs> womp womp. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, and number two is that if you are a business in the United States and you would like to refuse service to, uh, based on people's sexual orientation, you can. Okay. Mm. Uh, okay. And three, uh, affirmative action um, uh, at the in admissions at universities and colleges. In, well, I guess they're the same thing in the United States. Look at me using Canadian language. Uh, affirmative action <laughs> in higher education in the United States uh, is in admissions in, admi- in higher education in the United States is also unconstitutional. And it's like, yeah, we can go through every single decision and I can impress you with my my knowledge of like all of the legal stuff in the United States. But I think the most important thing for us to talk about here from a Canadian perspective is actually just the strategy and the uh, uh the effectiveness of uh, the the organized right uh, in this mm-hmm. uh, in this time, um, and also that the the you know the affirmative action uh, guy, like the, one of the people who was like the most foremost on this thing, was like a Canadian guy from yeah, who's like a member of the Conservative Party out, out here. Yeah, I, and that kind of misses people, eh? Like I don't know how many people saw that, but. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was a column from uh, Susan Delacourt, who's like my least favorite national columnist, which I mean is quite saying something, actually, because there's a lot of them that I don't like. But- I feel like you've said that like 10 times on this podcast. <laughs> it's like, OK, we get it, Nora. You don't like Susan Delacourt. Nora just wants to make it very, very clear <laughs> that um, she she doesn't like Susan Delacourt. OK, gotten. Got you know it. what? We, we heard you. That We've lady- all written it down. <laughs> that lady blocked me like years and years ago because I said that her candidate column, candidate column, like a million years ago, was bad, and she blocked me. And I was like, 
wow, okay, your job is literally to have opinions and you can't be told that your opinion's not good, especially when it's objectively bad. Like, get the fuck out of here. Anyway, she just had a column uh, basically blaming the United States for importing conservative right-wing, hard right-wing conservative shit to Canada. And I think it is so interesting how fast Canadians, especially liberals, are to just blame everything on the United States that happens here. And maybe that's just because it's in our blood to do that. But certainly... We have a lot uh, to learn uh, from the American court decision and how people have organized. And we have a lot to like learn from our own rising far right and how this influences what um, what happens here. And actually, maybe we will go right into the University of Waterloo thing um, next because they are maybe more connected than than Google. Maybe we'll end with that. So. You know, we have a Supreme Court that operates a little bit differently than the United States Supreme Court. um, And so that is true. But what doesn't operate differently is how intense the organizing is from the far right. And they are so good at it. Like they they um, offer student seminars and free events and they identify activists and they give them the support that they need. They don't push out the extremes. They figure out how to bring them in and they they sit uncomfortably with them if some of the stuff they're saying is totally too extreme. But they know that it's always very effective and useful to have these people under that broad tent of conservatism. I mean, think of the version of this on the left. I mean, the left is like, you know, the fuck in your you're a pariah if you're too far to the left of the NDP. They won't even talk to you, right? So it's like, okay, so right there we could probably learn something from them. But just the basic organizing and um, and and seeing how effective they are and how we're not even matching them at all <laughs> from the left is, I think, probably the biggest lesson that we need to take from these decisions. Yeah, and I think uh, another like big lesson to take is, one – the affirmative action um, decision. I mean that the 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 since it was um, permitted, like in the 1970s, as a way to address systemic uh, racism, the 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 conservative right has been organizing against it on all fronts. They have won and lost many uh, a court case on this, and they just keep trying. They tweak. And they go again. They find new supporters and they go again. (laughs) They're like, oh, we've lost. We're going to keep on this and we're not going to give up on this. And there's something to be learned there. Um, And uh, additionally, it's like when they lose, okay, because this court, this, this decision on affirmative action, the decision on serving people based on their uh, sexual orientation or race, like these things have already been decided. They have been decided. Okay, Uh, they still don't give up. They continue to push this stuff forward. Uh, Some of these cases have been, you know, um, going on for for years because they started a lower court. And the fact that like every issue at all times is live is very important as a strategy. And they're hitting these these uh, cases on all levels. They know that it's not going to be popular to do some of this stuff on the ground. Uh, and so do they do it on the ground? Yeah, they still do. They still try. They still try to every single one of these cases, you, you can find um, an attempt at some sort of popular movement, even the student loan fucking case, which sounds impossible. But, you know, there's an attempt at a, uh, at a popular movement on the ground in addition to um, trying to make sure that they have uh, people in power, politicians, lawmakers on their side, in addition to trying to make sure that there are lawsuits that are active everywhere um, going on these on these cases. And I mean, it's successful in um, the the ending of Roe v. Wade and everything else. And let me tell you something. Now that this is done, like these cases are are complete, those campaigns will not be over. They will continue to be active on all of these fronts. And I think that those lessons are, uh, I think that we can learn something on the left from these things. I think too often we lose a campaign and we drop it, or we win a campaign and we drop it, or we decide that the best place for a campaign is like on the streets or um, just in this one particular place. You know, like we're only going to focus on this one particular uh, politician or jurisdiction 
And, uh, you know, we leave all of the multiple places that we can be um, fighting uh, for for change um, to, to just focus on what we think might be the most effective. And I think that what some of these uh, massive Supreme Court decisions are telling us is that 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 is the wrong approach. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think a lot about how left wing people often talk about how, like, we don't have the resources, we don't have the media, we don't have the corporations, we don't have the money. Um, it's easier to tear things down than it is to build them. Like all of these tropes that I, I often encounter from people explaining why the right is so much more effective than the left. And it's like, I think in a lot of these tropes, there might be some truth. I mean, there's no question they have better resources. They've got better connections to, to business or whatever. But that point about the fact that they don't care about losing, that every every battle is just setting up the next battle and that's how they see this, there's no evidence that anyone on the left understands it like that for any any social change any legislation we want defeated any legislation we want created any even politicians that we want elected there's no long-term vision at all at all and this has been a problem in canada for four decades and so if you're sitting here going I just don't even know where to start. Like I'm hearing what you're saying. I don't even know like how does like how do I plug into this? How do I understand these things? And and if if you don't remember like the 1970s and the 1960s or 1950s or 1940s or fucking earlier than that, it's because the left has has not done this at all in the last 40 years. There's a lot of reasons for why the left hasn't done this in the last 40 years. And I mean, we've talked about them on the show. Like I've written about them in books. <laughs> like my next book is actually about this. But the reasons don't exactly matter because there are so many things we could be doing that it's inexcusable that we're not. And here, here's one example. You know, I was at the Canadian Labor Congress, like so Canada's national umbrella organization for, for, for trade unions in this country. And there was a motion that was passed to lobby the federal government to help Indigenous communities locate or uh, probe grounds around former residential schools. And it was like, okay, that's, that's good, right? Like, that's, that's, a, that's good. We should expect the government to do these things. But when you are the body that represents working people in this country, isn't there a more direct way that Indigenous communities can get support to do these things? Isn't it through the work of the working people that you represent? Why are you going to government to do this? Of course, they've got a responsibility to this. Of course, you can do the lobbying. But like, we're so parliamentarily, parliamentarily constricted, both in our imaginations, in what we think is possible, in our strategies, in the tactics that we choose. And it's like, we could do these things, folks. We could be doing these things. We don't have to appeal to government. And it's in thinking through this that I, I, I can see the path the, directly to talking about rising hatred um, that led to the stabbing that, that happened at the University of Waterloo uh, this past week. And again, it's like people, their natural reaction is to appeal to other people to fix these things. And of course, there's a role to play for government. Of course, there's a role to play for other bodies. If we're talking about a campus, we're talking about a municipality, whatever. Of course, there's roles to play. But at the end of the day, we have to be doing the work and we have to be pushing and pushing and pushing on every single lever that is out there, not just the levers that we're comfortable with already, which is pretty much only parliamentary. And the far right is excellent at doing that. Yeah, it doesn't matter how outlandish um, the ideas seem, because I mean, if you, I just like recall, you know, for those of us who were like being were, were politically active in the in the in the aughts in the late aughts and, the, and we were all making fun of the Tea Party. Well, uh, that was a strategy that uh, was, you know, not getting a lot of traction in, in like the mainstream, but was certainly being supported on the right. It was being funded on the right and that people were like, well, I mean, let's let's try it. Let's see. See what happens here. And I think, again, uh, this is where we really fail. And so, yeah, let's let's move into talking about Waterloo. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. What. An awful and horrifying situation, um, you know, uh, someone going into a gender studies class and and 
you know, demanding to know what the class is about, um, finding out and then stabbing people. It, of course, recalls um, the, the shooting at Ecole Polytechnique. And uh, it, you know, it, it makes us, it should make us think about, you know, like, one, the connections between these two things and what has happened over the years in between and where we are at uh, as, you know, in, in this country uh, when it comes to uh, the misogynist movement and I you know, I would say a, a growing uh, misogynist movement um, against uh, fucking women mm-hmm. and gender. Yeah. 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 So first of all, of course, everybody who is in that room, I mean, I hope that you all get the support that you need. And I imagine that's not probably happening because Canada is also very bad at, at supporting people who've gone through traumatic experiences like this. Um but my heart is goes out to you, my God, like what a violation, what a horrifying a traumatic experience. And certainly some of the students have spoken online about what they experienced. And it's just it's just horrifying. One of the biggest challenges then after an event like this happens is to resist fear as like a response driven by fear. And I think that that is really difficult because our natural reaction is to say, oh, my God, we need armed campus police. We need uh, campus police officers in every hallway. We need to make sure all the doors are always locked, not just to the classrooms, but also to the front doors. And, and gradually you create basically a police state to try and keep people safe. And we all know that that's not exactly how this stuff works, that it might it might work in a certain circumstance or whatever, but the reality is, is that, I mean, people inside of a class could have these v- views. People inside of the class can be violent that we, we, you know, you can't expect it to always come from the outside. And, you know, in this case, we know that the person was a student and so knew the campus and knew where to look things up or whatever. And that's going to be knowledge that all students are going to need for obvious reasons. And I think that this is, you know, just just like any kind of, of situation where there's a lot of rhetoric and then after months and months of rhetoric, some violence happens, you look back and you're like, we knew this was going to happen. We've been warning you. We've been saying this. We've been cr- cr- like create, we've been screaming at the top of our lungs to say that, that this was going to happen and look, it happened. And now what? And there are so many people that are going to want to exploit this for um for for political gains frankly there will be politicians that try to do that i know that i've seen criticisms already of certain local politicians um trying to exploit this for political gain and the biggest danger is that nothing actually does happen because the the reality is that these are deeply rooted problems within society and and every political decision of the current federal government provincial governments are all making it worse. <laughs> so, uh, so then, then how do we respond to something like this without falling into the trap of the security state demands? Um, but then also, how do we navigate this without feeling like we're overwhelmed by the sheer magnitude of the problem facing us? Yeah, I think. I mean, like part of the in terms of not being like uh, fucking a, a tool for propagandists at this particular point in time is to think think about the context in which this is occurring. Okay. Like one, we know that what this person did is illegal. It's already illegal. So like new laws or anything like that, not necessary. We, we, what this person did illegal. Number two, there were police on this campus. I don't know what you're going to do in terms of adding like new security personnel at the university of Waterloo. That's going to change anything. The university of Waterloo, like many large Canadian campuses have a police office on campus and have campus police. Okay. So, uh, you know, like I, that as a, as a solution, okay. It's already been tried, right? Cause they, here they are on the fucking campus. So context number two, number three, context number three, which you've just alluded to is like, you know, we've, we've seen these sorts of sentiments, uh, in our, on our campuses, uh, in our world, uh, becoming more and more mainstreamed, and we haven't done anything systemically 
to target them. That's context number three. And, uh, and number four, the danger of this happening starts far before it actually occurring. So I think, I mean, it's, it, it seems very obvious to me that what we are lacking right now is any sort of response that is going to prevent something like this. Now, in terms of what uh, someone does in terms of a response in, in a classroom when something like this is happening, on every single, uh, on every individual university campus, there's going to be um, th- their particular way forward on this. And I remember being on a campus and, uh, you know, fighting with the University of Toronto as to what their um, their measures were because they were woefully inadequate. And for, for anybody who's listening who works on a campus or works in a similar type of situation, of course, you're going to want to make sure um, that there's support for people um, in a way that makes sense. And in some ways, it's going to be local. But in terms of like this sentiment, there's this is systemic, right? We I think at this point, we know that. And in order to, to, to combat this and to, to try to prevent this sort of thing from occurring, you have to interact with it on a systemic level. And there's no amount of reaction based stuff that's going to prevent this from happening. What will be preventative is to, uh, to, to, to try to interrupt the misogyny that exists in our society at its base level. And it is supported by all sorts of laws and policies that do exist and laws and policies that don't exist. Uh, the way that our society is, is uh, constructed, designed, supports misogyny. And unless we are willing to fucking face that and actually try to fight that like we are continuing to support a a context through which this sort of action can be nurtured uh this sort of ideology can be nurtured and it and the 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 action that comes with it to take place Mm -hmm. yeah as you're talking i was thinking of like all of the all the things that can be called for at a university campus and i know that people have been calling for that i've seen professors talking about how they've been feeling unsafe in their classrooms and all these kinds of things that again are related to systemic issues and it makes me think about how woefully inadequate campus democracy is uh, whether that's campus democracy at the student level mm-hmm. student independent student organizing like within a, a, an independent student union i mean the, the 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 uw feds has never been a very radical organization i don't suspect that they're radical right now and they've been one of the worst student unions in ontario for a long time but maybe they're better now because i haven't really paid attention for the last 10 years but whatever like you have to have strong um independent student democracy but you also need to have strong democracy within the running of the school and that, so that means uh, a very strong culture of, of democratic control and decision making for 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 faculty, for staff, uh, and for students, and uh, constantly uh, like like fighting the administration, which is what happens on every single campus. Uh, it, it so easily boils into well, they're the decision makers, and you know we have to fight them from this kind of lower power level, and it's like. No, like you, these are the systemic issues that we're talking about. How do we build cultures of, of control of the institutions that we operate within? Uh, that's the only way that you're going to fight anything like misogyny, misogyny or trans misogyny within any of these institutions is you have to actually be involved in the control of these institutions, which then the institutions will fight like tooth and nail against. Right. But one of the things that I want to talk about this before we get off this topic is like how how do we deal with the fear because i'm i'm seeing a tremendous amount of fear from people very afraid to sit in classrooms very afraid to be in front of students very afraid of uh, random attacks very afraid of expressing their gender because of the attacks going on and i think that that fear i mean it's like however your body responds to this is 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 good is fine it's it's important it's not i'm not going to say that your reaction is is incorrect you shouldn't be afraid but what you do with that fear is i think the big question and how you get used to being less afraid of things that is the really important um, thing for a lot of us to, 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 to navigate, because if we're consumed by fear, we're not going to be able to take the radical steps that we need to take to dismantle these systemic structures. And the fear, whether that fear is, is, a, is a systemic fear because, you know, society is beating you down in 100 different ways all the time, or whether that's an acute fear because you're afraid that someone might walk into your classroom and start stabbing people. 
uh, it doesn't matter what kind of fear it is, it's going to produce the same response in your body. And so working through what to do with that fear, I think, is really, really critical. And that takes community. That takes organizing. It takes being with people who have similar fears as you do and being able to talk about those fears. Um, But it also means... um, you know, trying to figure out who has maybe less fear to do more radical things and seeing how successful radical organizing can be and how not afraid of radical organizing that you might actually find yourself being as you're practicing this. And I mean, yeah, get the organizing. If there's anything that helps with fear, it's getting together with a community of people and doing something about um, about the, about the issue, like focusing together on figuring out a way to interrupt what that issue is. And so, um, for anyone uh, for whom that's something that you can do, and that's everybody, um, I'm hope that's something that you try. If uh, if if the fear is is um, is getting to you, try to get together with some folks and see if there's some action that you folks can come up with together. All right. So Google. <laughs> okay, Google. Yeah. Google hates Canadian news. Yeah, I've heard that. So Google announced, <laughs> Google and Facebook have announced because of uh, the the new laws that Canada has implemented, um, uh, which will force uh, social media uh, corporations to share in profits with Canadian news, that uh, Facebook will no longer allow Canadian news to be shared amongst Canadians. I believe that's the way that it works. I don't know if Canadian news can be shared amongst Americans or if it's just like Canadian news whatsoever. It's just not going to be able to be shared on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um didn't really look into it because I don't care because I'm not on Facebook so much anymore. <laughs> but I'm sure someone out there has the real answer. And similarly, on uh, Google will not be sharing uh, Canadian news sources with Canadians who use uh, Google as a platform. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's what's happening. Uh-huh. <laughs> and. Can I can I tell you what I thought uh, when when I when I heard this and I, I've been seeing some of the arguments about whether we should be upset at the government or whether we should be upset at Google or whether we should be upset at like whatever. Can I tell you what I thought? Sure, I'd love that. Nora Loretto, I've said this before and I will say it again. I I like I think that we're like fully out of uh, political imagination, and I think that people m- maybe. Uh, are are forgetting the value of like what is public versus what is private like mm-hmm. it has never been a good thing that google can decide what news sources to show us it's never been a good thing like um i mean in that sure it could be a good thing like it's a it's a private company that's doing a thing sure like let google decide whatever it is that it wants us to see but it is not a good thing that we would be so dependent on a private company to showing us or showing us this stuff. And I just like, I can't help but think that if we were in a different political era, that some time ago, some, some long time ago, (laughs) that maybe someone would have thought, wow, these search engine things are becoming really important. Perhaps we should design a public version of that. It is the equivalent of a fucking library. Google has become the equivalent of a library. And the library is a really important resource for the public, that we can walk into a library and have access to all sorts of different types of news, to fucking games, to books, to periodicals, blah, blah, blah. And the, somehow Google has become the virtual equivalent of that. And no one, none of us have thought like, gosh, we should make a public version of this thing. And I mean, you you and I have talked multiple times about how communications should be nationalized in different ways and how we should have public access to um, uh, to, to certain types of communication. I was thinking about this this week when Twitter changed some fucking rules to make it so that, I don't know, so people can't see as many tweets or something. I don't know. I wasn't really affected by it, but I saw everybody tweeting about it. And I saw mm-hmm. a tweet by a weather service in Canada that was like, Twitter, this is unacceptable. People use us um, finding our tweets uh, for, uh, you know, to keep safe. <laughs> Do we? like, well... <laughs> 
maybe we shouldn't be relying on Twitter and the whims of Elon Musk to keep safe. Like maybe maybe that's a bad idea and that we should be thinking about how to create public versions of all the shit that we've come to rely on. Because, you know, whether it's Jack Dorsey or Elon Musk or Zuckerberg, like I don't believe in that any of them have our safety or um, making sure that we know all of the information that we need to know um, at heart. But, you know, all of my local libraries that I've ever had the pleasure of interacting with, I've never thought to myself, hmm, I think someone here is really trying to fucking use me to make a bunch of money and nothing else. I've never thought that. <laughs> and I'm just like, can't, can we not, do we not have the political imagination to try to create another version of a library that works in the digital landscape that exists today. Mm. Yeah. So I wrote an article about this, an article, a little post at Substack. I don't know if you saw it. And I basically asked Mm -mm. the same question. Really? And no, I haven't yeah, seen it. So that's yeah. amazing <laughs> that we are so much on the same page. I didn't talk about the library side of things, though I should have considering my background. But uh, what I did talk about is the creation of CBC Radio-Canada, which happened as broadcasting was emerging as this new form of communications. And so all of a sudden, something called the airwaves existed and the airwaves were uh, public. The government considered them public entities. The airwaves are owned by Canadians. That's why the CRTC was created to regulate what was going over those public airways, because, of course, um, there's only certain bandwidths and you can only, you know, if you've got a station here and a station there, then you can't have a station there or whatever. But they created a public institution called CBC Radio-Canada. Fast forward 80 years and those and, and CBC Radio Canada, whether it's radio or television or online news, is like going to be the last news service standing as all of the corporate media crumbles. So it's like we did have the, 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 the creativity and the ambition to do these things 80 years ago. But I mean, 20 years ago, it was like, no, this is too that's like we can't compete with Facebook. No, we can't make our own search engine. Ten years ago, five years ago, and now we're like, oh my god, like Google's got us by the freaking neck. And it's like, what did you think was gonna happen, Canada? And yeah, so rather obviously. than yeah, and so rather than building these things, what do we do? We're gonna try and get them to pay per link. Like, who came up with that? Yeah. I mean, obviously, like, again, like these, these are private corporations. <laughs> like we, you, you know, like we've been a part of setting up a, a global landscape of how much power private lo- corporations will be able to have to, 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 to decide their own internal mechanisms. And, uh, like duh, like they're going to be like, you know, this, this, this is not a money maker. This is a money loser. And in fact, uh, probably with you know their shareholders, they wouldn't be permitted to take any other sort of form of action. So like I, you know, I get I fucking yeah. We maybe should be upset with Google, but I like who cares? You know, again, they they are a private corporation. Their raison d'être is not to serve us. But there is an organization whose raison d'être is to serve us. It's like the public service, <laughs> the way that it that it is is uh, coordinated <laughs> and designed in all sorts of different ways, and we can control that. And if you're if you're thinking if you're listening to this and being like, oh my god, like fuck, I mean the Canadian government can't even make a website, let alone fucking you know uh, create a search engine like sure i agree but there's ways that we can get around that too whether it's the the government licensing another organization to start the creation of something and then taking it over like you know there's all sorts of ways that we can think about how to make this happen and i love the example of cbc news uh because you know uh for all of the ways that it doesn't work there's ways that it works too and so i fucking think you know I don't see any other conversation that makes sense out of this except for how the fuck do we create a version of um, whatever we need on the Internet publicly that we can publicly control. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to shout someone out, uh, Darren Atwater. 
He saw me ranting about this online, and uh, I don't exactly know what exactly I had said, but he has created something that is launching this week. Actually, it launched yesterday, and it is called dailycanada.ca, and it is an aggregator of all Canadian news. And you can go to the website, dailycanada.ca, and there's just a news feed of stories fed automatically from every news organization in Canada that Darren has added to uh, the, the the role. Um, we, we'll be adding more people to it. Uh, so there's everything from good substacks all the way to, you know, like the Vancouver Sun. And that's a citizen response to trying to build something to just pull together into one place where you can see the news kind of scroll past you. Um, and, and I think that that's really important. Like, the, like at some level, who's using Google to read news? I'm imagining it's not that many people. What Google is for is for archiving news and for reading older news because you want to search for something, someone's name, something that happened. Certainly Google was fundamental to my uh, research for my COVID book. Like it was through Google that I was able to search for articles that had the words COVID, death, and from Canada in, in them. And that's where I found all of the, you know, 50 or so articles that I read every night. So Google plays a role. But it's Facebook that I think is the place where we share and see a lot of news. And media companies have been all in on Facebook, encouraging their journalists to post and engage on Facebook and directly advertising to us. And now it's like, you guys fucked yourselves. Like, this was never a good platform. It's not a good platform for news. Um, it's it's hollowed out local news. We know that. Local news puts a lot of money into its content. And then Facebook just gets free eyeballs all the time because people are sharing their stuff. And um, and we're left with, uh, with uh, nothing. So, I mean, I find this all very um, – I kind of find it funny. I mean, it might sink – some parts of my own career so that plus twitter taking a dump is like okay um but i i am sitting back and, and watching the incredible um the incredible lack of decision making lack of foresight lack of, of creativity of our current government and of course previous governments and it's like yeah you guys fucking you guys suck <laughs> like really really badly you really suck <laughs> 